Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, it's Amit. Thanks for joining us for today's visit to the CardioNerds Hypertension Clinic. In this part of our prevention series, we get to learn all about hypertension from Dr. Luke Laffin, preventive cardiologist and hypertension expert. We are also so excited to be joined by Dr. Greg Ogunowo, a brand new first-year cardiology fellow here at the Cleveland Clinic. Greg completed medical school at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine and internal medicine residency training at Washington University in St. Louis. He served as an academic hospitalist there before moving to Cleveland to dive into cardiology. Greg enjoys traveling, exercising, and experiencing new cultures through their food. Greg, thank you so much for joining this episode. Hey, Amin. It's been an absolute pleasure. As an avid listener, I feel extremely fortunate to be able to take part in the Cardio Nerds podcast and also be able to learn from Dr. Luke Laffin this afternoon. You know, Greg, uh, when I met you, you recognized that I was one of the co-hosts of Cardio Nerds <laughs> right away. And, you know, I have to say, knowing that that you listen to the show was just so special for really all of us. And even after an episode comes out, you, you're right there the next day to give you feedback about the episode and tell me <laughs> what you enjoyed. And so it's just, uh, it's so special for us to hear that, that we're having an impact and really thank you for listening. And I, I told the team, like, we just, we have to get Greg on the show. So we really appreciate it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great podcast. Not only is it entertaining, but I'm learning a lot and, you know, being able to, I, I do remember that that afternoon when you walked in. I was like, "Oh man, this that's that's him." Let me I'll try no. not to fan out too much, <laughs> but but my efforts definitely didn't work. <laughs> no, Greg, yeah, that, that was definitely you made my day. And, um, you know, I, I I'm not sure if this is a fair question here in the COVID era, but as a as a traveler, uh, what has been uh, one of your favorite trips? Yeah, um, you know. Pre-COVID, like I really enjoyed to be able to take the opportunity to go out and just, you know, see different things and learn different experiences. I think I tried to be a bit too formal and say, learn new cultures through their food. That basically <laughs> means I'm just a foodie who likes to eat other people's food. <laughs> but um, some of my favorite places that I've been have actually probably aren't the most exotic, but just probably places that have probably meant the most just because of who I was with or why I was traveling there. Um, I've been to the Dominican Republic. I've traveled across Europe, Spain, France, all the typical places. But I actually had a really, really fun time in Toronto recently that was just amazing. Um, I know it's just north of the border here to us. Is that why you came to the Cleveland Clinic? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm just trying to inch my way closer and closer up north. No, but what makes traveling really, really beautiful for me um, is being able to take an experience that you're not able to get in your local surroundings and just really be able to immerse yourself in the culture. And when I was in Toronto, I did a lot more kind of, you know, museums, history tours, things like that. And, you know, just spending it with great people can make an experience really, really memorable. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy first year schedule as a traveler to take a trip with us uh, to the hypertension clinic. Thanks, Amit. I'm really excited to learn about hypertension from Dr. Laffin. But before we dive in, just remember, this podcast is an independent educational platform brought to you by cardio nerds who just love cardiology and teaching. 
This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is to enjoy learning cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Hey, cardio nerds, Greg and I are here to learn all about hypertension from a true expert. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Luke Laffin, cardiology faculty in the Division of Preventive Cardiology and Medical Director of Cardiac Rehabilitation here at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Laffin attended medical school at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He trained in internal medicine and cardiology at the University of Chicago, where he also completed a dedicated fellowship in hypertensive diseases. He is a clinical specialist in hypertension designated by the American Society of Hypertension, which is now merged with the American Heart Association. Dr. Laffin, you only recently joined the Cleveland Clinic, and it's been so incredible to work with you and learn from you. Dr. Laffin, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. You guys are doing a great job with the podcast. Dr. Laffin, we're so glad you joined us today. We have a very busy schedule for the Cardio Nerds Hypertension Clinic, and we could sure use your help. Let's get started with our first patient. Belema Torres is a 58-year-old woman with a history of hyperlipidemia who returns for follow-up. She's asymptomatic and reports no major issues since her last visit on November 12, 2017. Her blood pressure today is 135 over 85, the same as in her last visit. She's surprised when told she may have stage 1 hypertension. Why didn't they tell me last time, she says. Dr. Laffin, there's a lot to unpack here. But to get us started, do you mind reviewing the old versus new office-based blood pressure thresholds for defining hypertension? Sure. Yeah, Greg, I'd be happy to. So really what the difference is, the 2017 American Blood Pressure Guidelines came out in November, and those were endorsed by a variety of organizations, most prominently the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. And probably the most controversial aspect was really redefining at what levels of office blood pressure hypertension is defined. And so, whereas previously stage one hypertension had been defined at 140 or above for the systolic blood pressure and 90 or above for the diastolic blood pressure, they shifted that definition down to stage one hypertension was 130 uh, to 139 millimeters of mercury systolic over 80 to 89 millimeters of mercury systolic. And this, uh, you know, there's a lot of different opinions out there, but there's also reasons behind why they made this change to actually call systolic blood pressures in the 130s hypertension. Probably the most significant reason was clinical inertia. Whereas if we tell someone you have prehypertension or some term that doesn't really mean a whole lot, they're a little bit less likely to change their lifestyle and their patterns. And we may not be treating people as aggressively as we need to. And that really comes down to understanding what the evidence was behind that change from 140 to 130. And that was driven predominantly by the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 of the SPRINT blood pressure trial. The SPRINT blood pressure trial got a lot of publicity at that time. And no trial is perfect, and I don't think SPRINT was perfect, but it provides a lot of good evidence for clinicians about how aggressively to treat hypertension. So I think it's helpful just to go briefly through what it actually showed was it was comparing lowering systolic blood pressure to 120 or lower versus less than 140 for the systolic blood pressure. And what it ultimately showed was that those patients that we use more aggressive blood pressure treatment strategies, so typically more medications, 
ultimately, they died less and they had less of the composite primary endpoint, which was major adverse cardiovascular events, as well as the inclusion of heart failure events. Not surprisingly, as I think a lot of us would would have thought when they announced the trial had stopped early, was that a lot of this primary endpoint, uh, well, the primary endpoint was predominantly driven by changes in heart failure. Okay, there's a lot less heart failure in the group that was more aggressively treated, and so that really drove a lot of clinical decision making from the end of 2015 forward, and then the discussions about changing thresholds for for blood pressure management because it seems like people do better when we treat them a little bit lower. You know, one of the criticisms to Sprint is how representative is it of the general population that we see? Um, in certain respects, it is. In certain respects, it isn't. You got to remember they weren't enrolling people with really wide pulse pressures or quite low diastolic blood pressures. So you weren't dealing with those isolated systolic hypertensions where diastolics are starting out in the 50s, uh, you know, 140s over 50, for example. So they didn't enroll those people. Important to note that they enrolled people with high risk of cardiovascular disease. So it wasn't individuals walking around at 30 years of age, okay, with, with elevated blood pressure because they just weren't going to see the number of clinical events that they would need to. And then the way that they measured blood pressure and the way that they titrated medications was also interesting. They did automated unattended office blood pressure measurement, which typically tends to be a little bit lower than what we'd see in a typical office setting for measuring blood pressure. And then they were pretty aggressive in the control arm, so the less than 140 arm, about deprescribing. And ultimately, their goal was to get people for that systolic blood pressure between 135 and 139. Now, that, that's where some of the controversy comes from as well, because if someone's doing fine and their blood pressure is 129, 130, are we really going to de-prescribe for them? Certain people in their criticism of Sprint would say, no, we're not, but, but that's what they did in the trial. So that was the Sprint trial, and that really drove a lot of these changes in the blood pressure guidelines. The following year, the European Society of Cardiology brought out some guidelines as well. They didn't change the definition of hypertension. They kept it at 140 over 90. But the important thing to note about these guidelines is that both make the point that if someone's at high cardiovascular risk, so similar to the sprint trial population, we should consider, at least in the European guidelines, the, the language is we should consider getting them to 130 over 80 or below. And obviously, the American guidelines, that's really the goal in anyone with secondary prevention for cardiovascular disease or those individuals at high risk for, for cardiovascular disease but are still a primary prevention patient. And what they typically use there is a cutoff of about 10% or so based on the ASCVD pooled cohort equation risk calculator. There's a little controversy about that because well, where, where did we come up with 10%? When you look at the SPRINT trial, who were they enrolling? Really, when you look at that population, those people had about a 15% risk when you look at it from the Framingham risk score. So just some things to think about. And what the general take home from the guidelines is that we've redefined hypertension to try and prevent some of this clinical inertia. And so that's downgrading stage one to 130 to 139 over 80 to 89. And then also thinking about that the European guidelines, although they don't change the definition strictly, in certain high-risk populations, they correspond with the American guidelines saying we should be aggressive about trying to get them lower than 130 over 80. Thanks for going over that, Dr. Laffin. I remember very well when the sprint trial came out. It's almost like those events where everyone knows where they were when they found out. Because up until that point as a resident, we were always taught to be very liberal in our blood pressure strategy 
for the elderly patients, and it really put things um, upside down on their heads for us. So I, it was really definitely a huge practice-changing trial there. Yeah, and I think that I, I don't think being being conservative with older patients is necessarily wrong. If they're if they're frail, they have multiple medical comorbidities, they're they have more risk of side effects, et cetera, from introducing new antihypertensives. But in the in the patient that can take it and wants to really reduce their risk of heart failure, stroke, et cetera, yeah, we uh, the data is pretty clear that we should be more aggressive with treating hypertension. Yeah, that was all really great information, Dr. Laffin. And I feel like the first clinic blood pressure is often falsely elevated. It's usually checked when the patient just gets into the clinic and gets lower when I recheck during my visit with the patients. Dr. Laffin, can you review the proper way to check a clinic blood pressure as well as the use of home blood pressure cuffs and rolled ambulatory blood pressure monitoring? Yeah, Greg, uh, definitely uh, we can talk about it. That's a really big deal and a real big push recently in the hypertension community is just make sure we're measuring blood pressure correctly, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll touch on it in a sec, but the sensor on your iPhone where you say you can measure your blood pressure through your thumbprint, obviously that's going to be not helpful. So it's really important that we take the time in clinic to measure blood pressure correctly. The standard recommendations are patients can't have had any coffee or exercised or anything like that significant for 30 minutes before we check their blood pressure. We want them to sit um, alone, not you know, chatting with the medical assistant or nurse or gabbing on the phone for at least five minutes before we check blood pressure. And that applies to checking at home as well. When you do it, you want to make sure that feet are flat on the floor, legs aren't crossed. Uh, arm has to be resting at heart height. You can't be holding it up. And, uh, and you want to make your, make sure your back is supported and straight. You have to make sure the bladder is empty because a full bladder will raise blood pressure by about 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury in most patients. And then what we recommend is then checking blood pressure. There's a newer statement put out by the American Heart Association talking about should we be doing oscillatory or oscillometric? And really the push has been more towards oscillometric blood pressure measurement because we, we eliminate the you know, human error associated with listening to the cork off sounds. And so we go and sit there, we check the blood pressure. Typically, when you're seen in clinic for a, a new patient appointment, you want to be checking blood pressure in both arms as well. It can be very important to identify any, any significant difference there, so to speak. There's always going to be a small difference between that. And then when you do it in a clinical setting, depending on the clinical question, oftentimes we'll have patients stand for a couple of minutes and then get orthostatics as well. But that's not on all patients. It's just in the right scenario. But the biggest thing is just having them rest for that five minutes and doing it properly. Unfortunately, you need the, the clinical space to do that correctly. So most people, if you're just getting it checked in the exam room, sitting on the exam table, that does not count. As we know, the arm isn't supported in resting. You don't have your back supported as well. So that's not really helpful in those settings. Now, when I talk to my patients about home blood pressure monitoring, which is very important, I give them similar instructions, really. And when we talk about it with them, we really say don't just take one measurement either. Typically, what we recommend is take it in duplicate or triplicate, uh, you know, with some time in between, a minute or two, so to speak. It's pretty good data showing that second and third blood pressure measurements are going to be lower than the first. And so typically what we'll do is we'll either average all three, because that's what a lot of blood pressure trials do, or we throw out the first and average the next two. Now, I've had a few patients come to me and they say, Doc, my, my first blood pressure, my first few blood pressures are real, real high. But by the 20th time I've taken in a row, it looks great. 
And so you got to tell patients, eh, that's probably too many times to be taking it. That doesn't count, okay? Your blood pressure is still high in that setting, but really taking it two to three times uh, consecutively can be helpful. And a lot of the home blood pressure cuffs that we can purchase, it's already auto-programmed in there to take three measurements and, and ultimately show you the average. The question about accuracy of home blood pressure cuffs always comes up. And now there's a real a newer website launched called validatebp.org. And what that does is that really shows all the well-scrutinized devices that have been validated for blood pressure measurement. Now, it's not a large list, so I'm not saying for patients if they can't afford one of those or um, they can't get one of those specifically that that they shouldn't go out and get themselves a brachial blood pressure cuff. But that's a nice resource that if patients are looking for a cuff to get, you know, print them out that website or give them that website so they can have that. And it's really important, um, you know, home blood pressure monitoring for someone like Ms. Torres here that we've been describing. Home blood pressure monitoring is going to be helpful if she was a little bit more hypertensive or she was on medicines. You know, any patients that are on medicines, we want to do home blood pressure monitoring because as we can get, when we think about blood pressure, we have to think about it as concordant or discordant blood pressures, depending on if we're in the office or the, or the out of office setting. Um, and we have, if we have discordant of those, so i.e. low clinic blood pressures and high out of office blood pressures or the opposite, we have high clinic blood pressures, but low out of office blood pressures. Those are going to be these uh, subtypes of hypertension. So mast hypertension and white coat hypertension respectively. And so it's really important that we're not under treating or over treating those patients. So that plays a big role in most hypertension specialist practices and increasingly in primary care settings, in value-based care settings, where we can upload that information to the electronic medical record because uh, there's good data that patients, at least for the first few months, at least when they're in studies um, looking at home blood pressure monitoring, are pretty good and, and can have good results in terms of lowering blood pressure. When we talk about other ways to measure out-of-office blood pressure, the other thing that always comes up is ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And typically, when we think about ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, for those that are not familiar with it, it's essentially an oscillometric brachial blood pressure cuff. It attaches to what looks like a 1990s cell phone in terms of the size of it. It hooks onto your belt, and the cuff is programmed to inflate every 15 to 30 minutes during the day. Sometimes people use 20 minutes um, and then every 30 to 40 minutes overnight. And it'll do that for a 24-hour period. And technically, that is the gold standard for blood pressure measurement. There's obviously issues with access to that technology. Ambulatory blood pressure machine costs a couple grand. So you're doing that. They are, it can be difficult to schedule. Not all clinics, cardiology, nephrology clinics have them available, but they can be very useful in certain circumstances. Interestingly, CMS recently, not recently, I guess a year ago now, released uh, new guidance on reimbursement for ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which was previously just for white coat hypertension. And they added the indication of masked hypertension, which is, as you guys probably know, elevated blood pressures outside of the clinical setting, but what appears to be controlled blood pressures in a clinical setting, in an office setting. And so that has expanded the use of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring a little bit more and makes good on that technology, which can be really helpful to better delineate who needs more aggressive treatment, who actually needs treatment, or who we're just dealing with white coat hypertension. There's a lot of products out there looking at other ways to measure blood pressure on an ambulatory basis. I know that everyone's trying to come out with one of these watches or something that measures photoplethmography to actually measure blood pressure in a non-invasive fashion. 
None of those have really panned out as of yet, but we're probably getting there. Probably within the next few years, we'll have something that is reasonable. The most recently FDA-approved device is, is interesting. It's called the Omron Heart Guide, and it's actually a watch you put on your wrist, and it measures oscillometric blood pressure. It actually includes the radial artery, and so you can get some pressures there. They've done some studies that shows a pretty good correlation with 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and obviously it's shown some accuracy as well. It's FDA-approved for that to what their standards are. So really, there's all kinds of technologies out there for individuals to measure their blood pressure out of the office, et cetera. The, one of the questions becomes, who's going to take care of that information? And I think that's what a lot of clinics, especially primary care clinics, there's a lot of burden of documentation, et cetera. Who's going to read those 20 blood pressures that come in from the patient? So it's, uh, it's an evolving field. I think it's really interesting. We're adding these telehealth, obviously, we're doing it with EKG monitoring for atrial fibrillation with a live core app. But really, blood pressure is really the next step with that. And I'm hopeful that we'll have consistently used technologies over the next number of years. Wow, what a whirlwind tour, Dr. Laffin. And it really goes to show you that not all blood pressure measurements are the same. And I, I love that you point out the issue about having a full bladder because one of my favorite NEJM case reports was a patient that had presented with hypertensive emergency. And actually, the cause was found out to be bladder outflow obstruction with a post-obstructive nephropathy. So that was really interesting. It's interesting. And when you tell that to patients, I would say about 60% of patients, and I'm in a referral clinic for resistant hypertension, 60% of those patients are like, really? No one's ever told me that. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, it's pretty clearly in there, but it's, it's just something that you know we think about to sit quietly and do that, but we don't necessarily think about that, but it, it can be really important. That was definitely news to me. Oh, and hey, Dan just uh, walked into the clinic. Dr. Laffin, Dan is an intervention fellow and was just cathing one of our patients, but he really wanted to make sure that he got an episode to learn from you because we've been thinking about this for so long. Dr. Laffin, I am so, so sorry I'm late. I came as soon as I can, but for me, better late than never because I definitely don't want to miss an opportunity to listen to some serious hypertension knowledge bombs from you. You are such an expert in this field and just, I couldn't miss out. So sorry, major FOMO, but here I am. That's great. You'll probably be more interested when we talk about interventional stuff at the end. So there you go. No, no. Intervention is really, really fun, but I definitely, definitely want to know more about hypertension. This is incredibly important. That's good to know, too. Good to know this. <laughs> okay, so let me pick up where Greg left off with Miss Belania Torres. Her blood pressure is 135 over 85, and her predicted 10-year ASCVD risk score by pooled cohort equations is 2.9%. Say we confirm that she is stage 1 hypertension. I have two questions to pose to you. Number one, what lifestyle recommendations do you advise for blood pressure control specifically? And two, is it time to start medical therapy? Should we take the plunge and order some pills? Great. So I'll answer question number two for you first, and that is no, not quite at this point. That gets back to this idea of the threshold of risk where we think where we should be starting medications, okay? And that's essentially a 10% risk based on the, the 2017 American guidelines. So in stage one hypertension, really what we recommend is uh, lifestyle modification for blood pressure control. And that's really the crux of when you're talking about dealing with any type of hypertension, prim primary hypertension on one drug all the way up to resistant hypertension. What I typically tell patients is blood pressure control is 70% lifestyle, 
30% medications. I can give you four or five, six medicines, but if we're not doing the lifestyle things that we need to do, we're not going to be successful in getting your blood pressure where it needs to be. And obviously we're going to have more side effects associated with certain medications. So what I think is really important to refer to is guidelines, specifically those 2017 guidelines. They have a great table in there showing all the non-pharmacological ways that we can control blood pressure and ultimately what their effect is in normotensive individuals in terms of blood pressure lowering and what it is in hypertensive individuals and, and how much blood pressure lowering you get. The interesting part about this was a, a table very similar to this was conceived all the way back in 2003 with those guidelines, and it hasn't really changed all that much. So it's really powerful stuff, and it's really up to the clinician that's seeing the patient in clinic to aggressively address these factors. And even if you can't do it at a single visit, you can farm some of these tasks out to nutritionists, supervised exercise programs, etc. So what are some of the specific things that we talk about? I think number one, we'll, we should just talk about diet, okay? Uh, most people that are listening to this podcast are probably reasonably aware of the DASH diet. If they didn't know, DASH is an acronym for Dietary Approaches to Stopping Hypertension. And it really forms the basis of dietary modification for blood pressure management. So published in the New England Journal in the late 90s, I believe it was 1997, was looking at adults with mildly elevated blood pressures. So systolics under 160, diastolics between 80 and 95. And they didn't have any blood pressure. They weren't taking blood pressure medicines or blood pressure medicines were withdrawn while staying below those thresholds. And what they did was they did a running phase of a controlled diet, and then they randomized them to, to three different diets. There was a controlled diet, so the average American diet, so to speak. There was a fruit and vegetables diet with high fiber, and that was corresponding to the 75th percentile for potassium and magnesium. And then there was the DASH diet which was fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy, reduced fat and cholesterol, okay? And that was called the combination diet, so to speak. And that really formed the basis for uh, blood pressure lowering, um, or at least a, a randomized controlled trial to look at blood pressure lowering. What it showed was the change in the combination group minus the change in the control group was negative uh, 5.5 millimeters of mercury systolic and negative uh, 3.0 millimeters diastolic. And the effect was even more pronounced in those individuals that specifically had blood pressures over 140. It was about 11 over 5 millimeters of mercury. So that really forms the basis for guideline recommendations for a dietary modification. Man, it's almost 25 years old, that study now. People tend to forget is that the original DASH diet was not a low sodium diet. Those patients got about three, a little bit over three grams of sodium based on urine sodium concentrations measurements, 24 hour urine sodium. So uh, it wasn't a low sodium diet. The low sodium follow up was a couple of years later, which showed additional blood pressure lowering effects with that low sodium component. The interesting part is when you actually compare the control diet to the combination or DASH diet, it makes a big difference um, in both diets if you're on a low sodium component. So sodium plays a big role. And when I have 30 minutes to see a new patient, for example, I may not have time to go through all the components of the DASH diet with them. And so th that's where they get their nutrition or dietitian referral. But I do have a chance to talk about low sodium with them because I think that's probably the most high yield thing you can do in a clinical appointment. And so there's all kinds of different thresholds that people use. A lot of patients are just told, yeah, reduce your sodium or try and cut it in half. And that's fine. Okay. That's a starting point. But patients oftentimes want something more concrete that they can bank on. 
what general recommendations, there's different thresholds that different organizations use for maximum amount of uh, sodium one should have on a daily basis. American Heart Association uses 1,500 milligrams. That's pretty aggressive for the average American diet. And then uh, a lot of other guidelines, including the most recent scientific statement on resistant hypertension, endorse less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium. The difference between those is really only a couple millimeters of mercury. So you're not getting a huge blood pressure drop by going from 2,300 to 1,500. And patients will like you a little bit more if you're, uh, if you're a little bit more liberal with the sodium. So how do I explain it? It's pretty simple. So if one is cooking everything fresh on a daily basis, okay, no processed foods or things like that, they're allowed one level teaspoon of salt. One level teaspoon of salt is equivalent to about 23, 2400 milligrams of sodium. So if they keep that in the back of their mind, that helps them. What I'll oftentimes also give them as a, just an example is say, think of it as a debit card that you get refilled every morning. Here's your 2300 milligrams. Don't spend it all in one place. If you go over, you're going to pay interest, and that interest is higher blood pressures. And you got to think about it as a ledger and, and check those things off. So, typically, thinking about reducing anything from the deli, ham, sausage, bacon, pickles, soups you don't make yourself, tons of salt. Thinking about foods that we don't think have a lot of sodium, but actually do. Salad dressings tend to have a lot of salt. Cheese, especially older, harder cheeses, have a lot of salt. Bread on a relative basis has a lot of sodium in it. So thinking about those things and just getting people, not everyone that you see is going to be having a high amount of salt, but more often than not, just giving them that direction can be really helpful and really important. Also understanding that if you're on a high sodium diet, the efficacy of certain blood pressure medications is not nearly as effective. So thinking about that can be really important. Now, that being said, so everyone should be on a low sodium diet for blood pressure. Do they have to be on the DASH diet? No, not necessarily. There's some 24-hour ABPM data based on the Mediterranean diet looking, and that shows a, a significant reduction in blood pressure. It's not as much as the DASH diet, but we saw it. That was a sub-study of the PREDIMED Mediterranean diet study. Vegetarian diets, people have looked at them. The studies are of varying quality, but we generally do see a reduction in blood pressure with a vegetarian or a plant-based diet as well. So there's a lot to, to unpack there from a dietary perspective, but in a busy clinic, really focusing on the sodium component, then allowing the, uh, the people that are the real experts in this, the nutritionists, et cetera, to focus on specifically implementing things like a Mediterranean dietary pattern or a, a DASH dietary pattern can be really helpful at reducing blood pressure. When we think about other non-pharmacological interventions for blood pressure, they're the typical things that we would normally really focus on. Physical activity predominantly aerobic physical activity. We want to be aiming for at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity a week. And that's consistent with the physical activity guidelines. I think they were released most recently in 2019. Weight loss, you know, one kilogram is equal to about a millimeter of mercury in terms of blood pressure lowering. That's a general rule of thumb. Obviously, it's going to be different for different people, but understanding that's the case. Stopping smoking, not drinking to excess. The guidelines really say more than one drink in a woman per day is tends to raise blood pressure more than two drinks in a man per day tends to raise blood pressure. So we want to get below that threshold. Coffee, although it's not as well delineated in the guidelines, we think about really no more than one to two cups a day, in, particularly in, in these individuals. And then the one thing that's not really discussed as much in the, the 2017 American blood pressure guidelines, but is more prevalent in the resistant hypertension scientific statement published by the American Heart Association back in 2018, was the effect of sleep 
on blood pressure and how ef- how important it is in terms of managing blood pressure. And we're really not talking just about obstructive sleep apnea because yes, obstructive sleep apnea has been shown to be associated with resistant hypertension. There's a high prevalence of it amongst resistant hypertensives. But it's also, even in the absence of sleep apnea, we really need to focus on quality and quantity of sleep. And so what we have to aim for patients to get is between six to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. Otherwise, you tend to have excess sympathetic activity, increased activity of the renin-angiotensin system, and ultimately more elevated blood pressures. And this manifests in a variety of ways. When I speak with the fellows, I always bring in this sheet of paper where a patient had their blood pressures written down and they had their hours of sleep written down on the, the column next to it. And it's a very clear delineation. She's sleeping six, seven, seven, then, oh, four, three. And then you'd see the next day, heart rate was normally in the mid-60s, uh, all the way up into the 80s. Blood pressure subsequently was up there as well. So asking at least a sleep history can also be really important in these individuals for non-pharmacological treatment of blood pressure. You know, I did a, I did a podcast for Cleveland Clinic. They like to do the marketing stuff and talked about this. And I told them, I said, we, how are we going to get people to watch this? So we named it Natural Ways to Lower Your Blood Pressure. And guess what? Like in less than a year, it's got over 600,000 views. Now, I, I haven't looked at the comments. I'm not that bold. But, you know, I think that, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think most people think natural and they think some powder or some special thing that they can buy on the Internet. But and then I went through this list with it and, and people want to hear this. So at least if you're showing them that, you know, you can try this, this, this lifestyle things before jumping to the prescription pad, I think you gain a lot of credibility with the patients. They, they know that you care about them and you want them to not just be that person that, that writes the prescription. Those are really what I see as the most important lifestyle components of blood pressure. And they're important if you're, you know, stage one hypertension with low ASCVD risk, who we're not going to start medications on. They're equally important. Some would say more important based on blood pressure reduction for those individuals with resistant hypertension. That's really the way that I think about non-pharmacological management of blood pressure. And it's real, real important to take the time to get people on board with that. You know, Dr. Laffin, one of the reasons why as a cardio nerd, I've been really enjoying the prevention series is because it keeps reminding me of the goals to strive for. Because I have to say that 150 minutes of aerobic exercise and eight hours of uh, consistent restful sleep uh, haven't necessarily been happening every single week. So uh, <laughs> that's a goal for myself. I love it. No, that's, uh, that's, that's probably true for, for most folks with kids and, and all that as well. So I know I agree with you. I agree with you. But remember, you can split that, that exercise up however you want. Okay. There's, a, wasn't there a nice paper about three or four years ago showing this weekend warrior who does, gets that 150 minutes on the weekend and none throughout the week? I think they do similar from a cardiovascular perspective. So does yeah. running to a code count? <laughs> I think that's where I get most of my exercise. <laughs> Dr. Laffin, you've really been a um, great help with Mrs. Torres. I think being able to understand how to properly not only check our blood pressure, but also to be able to understand ways to ensure that we're accurately checking in at home with apps and also website assistance is really helpful. And I think moving forward, explaining to our patient the importance of lifestyle modifications, not only with her diet, but also with physical activity and restful sleep will prove to be really, really beneficial in overall care. Thanks for staffing this patient with me. But as a busy clinic always is, there's a next patient up. 
we have Travis Mayweather. Um, Mr. Mayweather is a 55-year-old African-American male with a history of obesity, sleep apnea, type 2 diabetes with an A1C of 7.4, chronic kidney disease, stage 3, um, who presents today with a blood pressure of 148 over 92 millimeters of mercury. Dr. Laffin, how do you approach the choice of initial blood pressure medication in general, and what will be your top choices for this patient in particular? So, um, you know, looking at his overall picture, you'd suggest that he's at high risk for cardiovascular disease. It's still primary prevention patient, but blood pressures are elevated in the clinic, and he's got a lot of risk factors. He's got uh, stage 3 CKD, he's got known diabetes, sleep apnea, obesity. So the American guidelines recommend typically in these folks um, that are in that stage two hypertension range is everyone gets the lifestyle that we talked about. But then what we want to be starting with is fixed dose combination therapy. And so when you when you have lower blood pressures, it's reasonable to start with single agent therapy. Interestingly, the European guidelines really, unless there's overwhelming circumstances where we're worried about side effects, really push fixed dose combination therapy as the first thing that you add. In the American guidelines, they give you a little bit of leeway. So if you're 20 over 10 above where we need to be, then we should be starting fixed dose combination therapy. And these folks, in this guy, I definitely would start fixed dose combination therapy right off the bat. Now, there's a few factors that we have to take into consideration here. The ACCOMPLISH trial published back in, I believe it was 2008, looked at combination of ACCB, ACE diuretic. And so we know in that trial, ACCB tended to do a little bit better in terms of cardiovascular um, events. But uh, a couple of things to keep in mind here. One, he's African-American gentleman. Just in general, African-Americans tend to have more of a low renin hypertension, so have a little bit less efficacy with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers in the absence of a diuretic. So those medications work, but we got to get people on a diuretic. So for someone like him, we'd probably go with combination angiotensin receptor blocker and uh, thiazide type diuretic would be the, the best choice for him, and typically in a fixed dose combination pill. Now, the one problem with that, when we think about it, is uh, a lot of the fixed dose combination pills don't come with a real good thiazide type diuretic. They come with hydrochlorothiazide, and they don't come with endapamide or thalidone. Really, the, the most significant fixed dose combination pill that comes with chlorothalidone is still brand name. It's azelsartan, and so it, it will be a good choice when it comes off patent, but it's really unaffordable for most patients. And if you can't do that, then what I would ultimately recommend in this gentleman is thinking about something like chlorothalidone or endapamide for his thiazide-type diuretic, particularly with his CKD, because we know a lot of resistant hypertension is driven, especially in kidney disease, by volume. And we know that at lower GFRs, we're going to see a little bit less efficacy of hydrochlorothiazide. And then I would add on an angiotensin receptor blocker. We got a little bit of kidney protective effect. So with that lower GFR, I'd probably screen them for albuminuria as well, because that can impact some of our choices in terms of blood pressure medications. When we think about really GFR cutoffs, typically if we're under 45, I won't use hydrochlorothiazide. I don't use it very much anyway, but I, I will more go with chlorothalidone because we know it has a more consistent effect all the way down to a GFR of 30. Once we get into those, the stage four chronic kidney disease, then you're really looking at either sequential nephron blockade, so a thiazide type and a loop diuretic, which can have good blood pressure lowering effects, particularly in resistant hypertension. But in your primary hypertension, which we don't know if this guy's resistant hypertension because we don't know, I don't know how many meds he's on right now. 
but we'd probably think about just a chlorothaladone or endapamide. And, and if you were under 30 for a GFR, so stage four chronic kidney disease, then we'd be thinking about adding on a loop diuretic as well. If he were Caucasian, then I'd probably be more likely to go with a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker and angiotensin receptor blocker combination. Just tend to be better tolerated. The angiotensin receptor blocker is going to help eliminate some of the calcium channel blocker associated edema with it. And then, as I mentioned, the, some of the data from Accomplish would suggest that combination is better in terms of reducing overall cardiovascular risk. Um, a lot to unpack there ultimately for him, but you know there, there's a lot of different ways to to skin a cat, so to speak, in terms of blood pressure management. And so, really digging down and big things driving those decisions for him would be the fact he's African American, he's got some CKD, and so that's why I'd go towards more of a diuretic ARB combination rather than maybe a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker at this point. Love it, Dr. Laffin. Okay, that was a great approach to initial blood pressure medication regimens and how you could tailor it to your patient in front of you. But what is your blood pressure target that you go for when initiating medical therapy? So I'd use 130 over 80, okay, if they're measuring it appropriately. And that's really a class one recommendation in those American guidelines for patients with known ASCVD or a high 10-year risk. Gold blood pressure really for someone who, you know, maybe is a, a little bit less than that, we'd still go for 130 over 80, but it's just not as strong a recommendation in that setting. So we want to get them, typically what I tell patients is we want to get you somewhere in the mid 120s or so. You got to remember with the sprint trial, which drove a lot of these blood pressure changes, even in the under 120 arm, they didn't get them there. They got them to about 121 in terms of millimeters of mercury for their systolic blood pressure. So as long as we're in the 120s, that's really a sweet spot for people. We're going to avoid a lot of the side effects associated with going lower, but we're also uh, likely to get the majority of cardiovascular risk reduction in these settings. This gentleman, I'd I, Give them the whole spiel about non-pharmacological management. Give them the medication. Uh, what I typically do is I have them send me a message in about two to three weeks, see how things are going at home with the home blood pressure monitoring so we can make changes. And then in line with formal recommendations, bring them back in about a month to get things checked and see how they're doing. And at that point, we may have made one medication change or two. But that gives us enough time to really uh, implement some of these lifestyle changes and take the medications um, and get them to their full full uh, efficacy. Okay, makes sense. So in general, a target of under 130 over 80 works for most. And the true goal is somewhere with a systolic blood pressure of 120s, which gives us the greatest bang for cardiovascular risk reduction and avoid side effects caused by hypotension. Now, we did just get a call from the OB clinic next door. They're sending over a patient for your review. Hoshi Sato is a 36-year-old G1P1 woman who gave birth to a preterm baby girl at 35 weeks of gestation via an uncomplicated vaginal delivery. It is now one month later, and both mom and daughter are doing well and swell, save for the occasional hiccup with breastfeeding. Her pregnancy was complicated by onset of hypertension at 24 weeks gestation without proteinuria or other features of preeclampsia. Dr. Laffin, we have a few questions here. Let's take it one at a time. Number one, how do you classify the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy? Distill it down to, to two major questions to ask yourself when you're evaluating such patients. One, is this new onset or gestational hypertension, or is this just chronic hypertension? And typically what we use is a cutoff of, oh, one, we just ask them if they're on blood pressure medicines or have a history of hypertension. We know that. 
but we use a cutoff of 20 weeks as before 20 weeks. If you develop hypertension, that's really not gestational hypertension, but after 20 weeks in a previously normotensive individual, that's called gestational hypertension. So making that delineation is important. Then the next question becomes, do they have preeclampsia? And that, that can be in either setting, okay? You can have chronic hypertension and still get preeclampsia, as you know. Um, and then we got to talk about, do they have severe features? So typically, I think what I was taught in med school was you got to have proteinuria to really make preeclampsia as a diagnosis. Um, now, we don't necessarily need to have overt proteinuria to make that diagnosis if you have some of the following things. You think about thrombocytopenia, renal insufficiency, elevated LFTs, pulmonary edema, cerebral or visual systems like severe headaches, visual changes, etc. So any, so either in gestational hypertension or chronic hypertension, if you have those, then, then you get into the preeclampsia range. Then you have to think preeclampsia doesn't have severe features or does it not? Um, and that just has to do with the level of blood pressure elevation. Typically use greater than 160 over 110, thrombocytopenia, pulmonary edema, et cetera. Those are the severe features. And obviously, if you have seizures, you're going into eclampsia in these individuals. So that's generally my framework that I like to think about these folks. When you think about uh, Ms. Uh, Sato here, she's someone who had an onset at 24 weeks, if I remember correctly. So that's gestational hypertension. And I wouldn't be surprised if she's normal in clinic right now. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean she's out of the woods. Thanks for going over that, Dr. Laffin. With regards to Ms. Sato, we have two additional questions. One is, we're told that her onset of hypertension was at 24 weeks gestation. Who knows if she was being screened for hypertension prior to that? And so my first question is, how often do you screen people for hypertension in general? And then my second question is, if her presentation of hypertension is truly purely gestational hypertension, is she at risk for developing chronic hypertension down the road? And how would you screen her for that later on? So for her in particular, we know that individuals with a history of gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, HELP syndrome, they clearly have an increased risk of hypertension. So she needs to be screened annually from here on out. Okay, It doesn't necessarily mean you need to do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring on her, but they've done studies where it's actually picked up a fair number of these individuals who we may miss um, normally because we think, oh, you had your baby, you're fine, go about your life. But we know those individuals are at higher risk for developing hypertension long term. So she needs to be screened on a yearly basis. Obviously, not all 36-year-olds need to be screened on a yearly basis for hypertension. Typically, the guidelines uh, are generally at least every three to five years. Now, is it great to screen them a little bit more often? Yeah, depending on the, the patient population. Um, and that's why certain studies, screening studies are, are effective and because not everyone's coming to the doctor every year. To your point about you know, not you know, knowing what you should be doing in terms of exercise and physical activity, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this haven't been to a primary care doctor lately for their blood pressure screening and things like that. So that's what we really think about when we're thinking about who we should screen in general. It's about every three to five years in younger patients and a little bit more frequently as they get older. Now that was a great discussion. Thanks for tuning in to Hypertension Part 1. Be sure to follow up with our next episode, Hypertension Part 2, as we kick it up a notch with causes and evaluation for secondary hypertension, approach to resistant hypertension, and interventional hypertension therapies. And we'll top it off with a note about cardiac rehab. I know I'm looking forward to that. Stay tuned.
Hi, this is Ahmed Kara. I am President of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and Professor of Medicine, Director of Preventive Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds Podcast. What an amazing job these folks do, and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine, and at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series, and if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers that have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. Thank <laughs> you.